Good evening, everyone. And firstly, I'll introduce myself and tell you a little bit about what I do. I'm the head of the Tate Archive, which is part of the Tate Gallery in London. And we collect archives relating to British art and art in Britain from 1900 onwards. This includes artists' archives, such as sketchbooks, correspondence, photos, diaries, writings, business papers, and so on. And also the archives of commercial galleries, art organizations, and art critics, just about anything that relates to um, art in Britain in that period. And we acquire the archives, we list and describe them on our database catalogue so that people know what's there. We make it available through our reading rooms and through displays both in the gallery and online. And we store it so that it's preserved for as long as possible. I'm going to start my talk tonight with a couple of preambles. Firstly, the thoughts I'll be sharing with you build on some thoughts which I've um, commented on in several other papers, including the one which I think Sarah just mentioned. Um, and really, uh, in those papers, I've been trying to offer an archivist's perspective as to the nature and meaning of archives, and perhaps correcting some misapprehensions about archivists and their work. From my perspective as an archivist, I'm always intrigued by the responses of other people to archives and interested in how they see it. And in my recent writings, I've also been calling for a, a wider exchange between different perspectives on archives, between artists, researchers, archivists, and the general viewer. This is at a time when I feel that archives are more widely known and yet less fixed in their meaning than ever, and a source of great interest for cultural commentary, critical theory, and artistic practice. And I'm going to use some of these thoughts to set the scene for a, a consideration of what we might call Christian Boltanski's archival practice. And the quote which I've used in my title for tonight's talk was actually initially not a quote at all. It was a phrase that I came up with to encapsulate something of the perspective on archives which I wanted to explore. But then I found almost exactly the same phrase in Boltanski's own words. And I took this as confirmation that I was somehow on the right track. In a similar way, the phrase talking archives can be seen in several ways. I'm talking about archives, obviously, but archives also talk to us collectively and individually. I make no apology for the fact that at times I'll be speaking from rather a personal perspective tonight. This may have something to do with the fact that I'm seven months pregnant, but also it's something about Boltanski's work and the qualities that he brings out. While somehow obscuring his own story, he manages to represent the universal and the individual at once. What I've always found compelling about archives in my work is the fact that at a fundamental level, they tell us something of the world around us and what it is to be human, which speaks to our own experience as individuals. Of course, the messages that we get from this material are necessarily mediated, implicated, compromised, but something else shines through. Any artist, archivist, reader or, or viewer might approach these archives and documents from different perspectives, but I believe that it's from these different perspectives that we can speak to one another and enrich the potential understandings of these speaking objects which surround us. Although some of the work um, we can see in the gallery today might be a bit of a departure from this, uh, Christian Boltanski has said many times that he resists his own autobiography and its involvement in either his work or discussion about it. And indeed, particularly in his early work, he used a kind of fictionalized autobiography. But nevertheless, he does use his own response to the lives and relics of others to offer a perspective on the universal human condition. And I quote him saying, 
The big problem is being able to tell the story of your own village while at the same time having your village become everyone's village. I want to be faceless. I hold a mirror to my face so that those who look at me see themselves and therefore I disappear. In my pregnancy, I've become aware in new ways that I'm merely a link in a chain. No matter how I might feel I've established my individuality, my own path, I have a primary biological purpose as a carrier of genetic information between generations. These are the imperatives which underpin all our daily lives, however much we seek to overlay them with the choices and constructs of the individual or the present. There are longer chains of life at work, longer stories of human experience, and Boltanski taps into these. Archives, it seems, are everywhere these days, both in popular culture and academic discourse. I don't know if it's the same in Sweden, but in the UK there's been a vast surge of interest over the past five to ten years in personal history. A popular television show is entitled, Who Do You Think You Are?, and looks into the family history of a celebrity each episode and explores the often surprising twists and turns of their heritage as documented in archives. A number of these celebrities, a newsreader, an actor-presenter, a talk show host, have discovered rich heritages in other parts of Europe, displaced by the turmoils of the 20th century and, for example, the persecution of the Jews. A black celebrity chef explored his family's roots in the West Indies to discover to his profound shock that on one side his forebears were white slave owners. There seems to be a resurgence of interest in the individual in history rather than us thinking of it simply as a series of events dictated and experienced in a dry manner only by those in power. The ordinary becomes extraordinary as it becomes connected to people, people like us. This is micro-history. Defining something as an archive has become a kind of shorthand, I think, as well, a term which seems to imbue whatever's being discussed with a greater weight or authority. And I discovered that even the computer game character Sonic the Hedgehog now has four volumes of archives available for purchase, inviting fans to, quote, travel back in time to where it all began, which must surely be about five minutes ago, isn't it? At the other end of the scale, the changing name of the English Public Record Office to the National Archives might be seen as reflective of a change in the positioning of archives from primarily an instrument of state to a more inclusive collective memory bank. And here perhaps it's worth saying a few words about archive stereotypes. The notion of archives and archivists retains almost supernatural connotations. The archive is popularly conceived as a space where things are hidden in a state of stasis imbued with secrecy, mystery, and power. The rows and rows of boxes on shelves, impenetrable without the codex which unlocks their arrangement and locations. And that's something which I think Boltanski is very much tapping into in, in this work, and there are a number of works where he uses a similar um, um, kind of theme, which is works in storage, how do you find the material you're looking for? And as a comparison, I've got just a couple of other images here. Um, the one on the left, is the archive store at the Henry Moore Institute in Leeds, um, which also collects artists' archives. And this image was taken by an artist called Federico Camera, and he's trying to bring out exactly those qualities of, of mystery um, and secrecy. And the one on the right is a very different sort of image, which is our store at the Tate Archive, an image taken for a very different purpose. But I think you'll see you know, the, the, the range of, of how you can um, present archives in this context. 
And the stereotype of the archivist, again, I don't know if it's the same here, but in many places it's, it's as officious rulemakers who cast spells around the archives, which you might see as damsels in distress, suspended in time and waiting to be rescued and reanimated by the users in shining armor, presumably. Indeed, much has been written by historians about the experience of using archives and the impulse to rescue and rehabilitate not just the lives and actions documented in the archive, but the very material itself, the stuff of history. And there's a very good book by um, a historian called Carolyn Steedman, a book called Dust, where she describes exactly that experience. There are also several recent novels which feature archivists as major characters. The summary of one describes the archivist as, quote, proud gatekeeper to countless objects of desire. The change in the place of archives in our daily lives is generally suggested to have been a consequence of the arrival of the personal computer and the idea of archiving electronic documents. A present-day English dictionary tells me that the verb means, one, to store historical records or documents in an archive, and two, in computing, to store electronic information that you no longer need to use regularly. The noun archive, too, is now used fairly loosely. The accepted professional definition of the archive is twofold. Firstly, a collection of historical records relating to a place, organization, or family, and two, a place where historical records are kept. Now, I'm not saying that definition is better than the other. I'm just commenting on, on how the, the definitions have evolved, and I think it's useful to remember the original definition as it changes and develops. Um, but this is some material from the archive of an artist called Prunella Clough, and you can see the range of material that it contains and how it can help shed light on, on her creative process. So for us, an archive is a group of papers or records generated by a particular individual or a unit of activity, as we might say, such, a, such as a business organization, and which all belongs together as being created by that person. The shape and contents of that body of material is in itself part of its evidential value and the relationships between the parts. These may or may not include a particular original order in which it was arranged, reflecting the processes that created it. Or the significance may lie in the interrelationships between the component parts of the archive, which can also imbue one another with authenticity. So you can see that the material in this case has been selected because it relates to, to each other and how the images in Prunella Clough's work evolved and um, related to one another. Um, another example would be that a diary could locate an artist in a particular place in a particular time, which could help, locate, um, help date the contents of a sketchbook. Um, so an archive is a set of traces of actions, the records left by a life or a series of actions, drawing, writing, interacting with society on personal and formal levels. This is distinct from a collection, which in the context I'm talking about is a group of objects or documents which have been taken from that original context of their production and gathered together with other items with which they had no previous relationship. So it, that collection is just generated by the activity of collecting. The term archive now seems to mean, in both popular and academic contexts, any group of objects, often digital objects, which are gathered together and actively preserved, or it can be used to represent often imprecise notions of historicity, age, and retention. But our feelings about archives are ambiguous, as the stereotypes also indicate. In a piece called The Man Who Never Threw Anything Away, the artist Ilya Kabakov expresses this ambivalence. The man of the title has a room filled with a lifetime's garbage stuff, bearing witness to meaningless and ultimately pointless efforts to classify and record all the links between all the items. I quote, 
A simple feeling speaks about the value, the importance of everything. This is the memory associated with all the events connected to each of these papers. To deprive ourselves of these paper symbols and testimonies is to deprive ourselves somewhat of our memories. In our memory, everything becomes equally valuable and significant. All points of our recollections are tied to one another. They form chains and connections in our memory, which ultimately comprise the story of life. At the same time, the man feels bogged down by the accumulated waste and the debilitating burden of this garbage. I quote again, Why does the dump and its image summon my imagination over and over again? Why do I always return to it? Because I feel that man, living in our region, is simply suffocating in his own life among the garbage, since there is nowhere to take it, nowhere to sweep it out. We have lost the border between garbage and non-garbage space. There are perhaps connections to be made between this fascination with archives and the characteristics of a capitalist materialist society in which we're surrounded by stuff, yet uncertain what is significant. Even amid democratic notions of the internet, human behavior seeks to order and privilege certain objects over others. Now the individual is king, our lives are endlessly documented in ways unimaginable to previous generations as seen in recent debates about information security, information held by the government, but also that which we offer up ourselves on sites such as Facebook, tagging our pages and creating our own taxonomies. The historian Pierre Nora has written that, quote, our whole society lives for archival production. In this situation where we apparently at once crave and feel overwhelmed by information, the archive can seem like a more authoritative or somehow authentic body of information or of objects bearing value or meaning. And by appropriating archival authenticity and possibly subverting or repurposing it, a notional value or meaning can be acquired by other things. The American art historian Hal Foster, writing of a tendency, what he calls an archival impulse in contemporary art practice, has described the archive as a place of creation, part of the embodiment of a, quote, utopian ambition a desire to turn belatedness into becomingness, to recoup failed visions in art, literature, philosophy, and everyday life into possible scenarios of alternative kinds of social relations, to transform the no place of the archive into the no place of utopia, a move to turn excavation sites into construction sites. And that last bit is the, is the piece I particularly like, the idea of um, not just looking into the archive to see what's there, but turning it into something new. And Kabakov also picks up on this idea, saying, a dump not only devours everything, preserving it forever, but one might say it also continually generates something. This is where some kinds of shoots come for new projects, ideas, a certain enthusiasm arises, hopes for the rebirth of something. A recent book published by um, Whitechapel and MIT in their series, Documents of Contemporary Art, is devoted to the subject of the archive. It's a very useful anthology um, looking at how artists and critical theorists have considered the archive. Um, it's a shame it doesn't bring in archive theory itself, but perhaps this reflects the position of the archive as more of a carrier in contemporary culture rather than being seen as having its own body of discourse. But the fundamental principles which underpin archive theory and practice, the work of archivists, Two key principles are authenticity, so knowing where the documents come from, and the context of the record, how it relates to the material around it. Um, these are eminently compatible with postmodernist thinking because they demand that we don't take the document at face value, that we look at the process of its creation rather than necessarily the product itself. 
And this has been um, a development in archive theory, just as in, in wider critical theory. Um, the father of, of British archives, Sir Hilary Jenkinson, said that archives, quote, state no opinion, voice no conjecture. They are simply written memorials authenticated by the fact of their official preservation of events which actually occurred and of which they themselves formed a part. So this is an idea that there is a truth in the archive which is, is fixed. And of course, thinking has, has developed since then, and another archive theorist called Terry Cook charts an evolution to the postmodern approach, which informs our work today and, quote, questions the objectivity and naturalness of the document itself. The document is not objective, innocent, raw material, but expresses past or present society's power over memory and over the future. The document is what remains. There is no one fixed meaning of any archival document. We might know the action which created the trace, but its present and future meanings can never be fixed and are open to each person to interact with. I won't go into the critical theory approaches to the archive here, um, but the most often cited theorist in discussions about the archive is Jacques Derrida. While Derrida and Hal Foster, who I mentioned previously, take quite different approaches to the archive, Derrida concentrating broadly on the more political significances of archives and foster on a more personal and less structured approach in which the archive is a mode of practice or a point of reference for the artist. Nevertheless, a common theme between the two is this reference to the appeal, even the compulsion of the archive, most strongly evoked in Derrida's notion of archive fever or mal d'archive. We are all on mal d'archive in need of archives. We burn with a passion never to rest interminably from searching for the archive right where it slips away it is to have a compulsive, repetitive, nostalgic desire for the archive, an irrepressible desire to return to the origin, a homesickness, a nostalgia for the return of the most archaic place of absolute commencement. No desire, no passion, no drive, no compulsion can arise for a person who is not already, in one way or another, en mal d'archive, says Derrida. Indeed, Derrida's most interesting proposals about the archive are to me not the archive as a locus of power and authority, as is often discussed in my experience, but the ambiguous and fragmentary nature of its contents, the at once presentness and absence of the traces which make up archives, the gaps, the fact that they record only what was recorded at the time and processed. They can't record what is said and thought, which makes up so much of our daily lives. The quality of archives which he identifies, their unfixedness, their incompleteness, their instability, is forgotten if we concentrate too much on the ideas of the exercise of power. Derrida's longing for the archive can be applied to a wider concept of the archive than his. Why is it that we long for archives? Artists, art historians, archivists, family history researchers, fans of Sonic the Hedgehog. Perhaps because we find ourselves there, we can project onto the archive whatever we want and it reflects most of all ourselves. Hence the need to find and rescue things and the pervasiveness of the stereotypes like myths. Like memory itself, we can be as selective as we like in what we take out of the archive while it pretends to offer us a whole story. Those endless shelves of boxes seem to offer an illusion of authority and apparent truth, yet we all know there's no such thing. This also relates to Derrida's notion of the Western impulse to look for the beginnings, the origins, and the idea that somehow this will be in the archive. Carolyn Steedman, who I mentioned earlier, has written about this aspect of archive fever, the search for something within the archive, an affirmation of the self, which somehow remains elusive. She says, the past is searched for something that confirms the searcher in his or her sense of self, confirms them as they want to be, and feel in some measure that they already are but the object has been altered by the very search for it. 
what has actually been lost can never be found. This is not to say nothing is found, but that thing is always something else. Archivists will tell you that researchers not only come to use archives with ideas of what they want to find, but they sometimes simply cannot accept that the thing is not there. They want proof of the event they're, they're particularly interested in, or, or the thought, or the decision. There's an expectation that archives will be complete, that somehow it should be there. But in reality, just as in theory, the archive by its very nature is characterized by gaps. Some of these are random. They might be the result of a spilt cup of tea, or the need for a scrap of paper to write a shopping list on the back of. And any archive is a product of the social processes and systems of its time and reflects the position and exclusions of different groups or individuals within those systems. The notion of the archive is attractive territory for the application and exploration of critical theory because of the processes it both documents and enacts and because of its contradictions and discontinuities. Any use of archives is unique and unrepeatable journey and the potential for writing about archives is the same. Archives are traces to which we respond. They reflect ourselves, and our response to them says more about us than the archive itself. I offer these thoughts about archives as a background against which we can look at some, um, some of Boltanski's work, which includes archival elements, and we can explore this notion of the archive more richly in his work. For it's a, it definitely is a recurring theme in his work, one used in many different ways from the earliest days. And in it, he's bringing out multiple potential new meanings for both the artist and the viewer. So it's this latent ambiguity that attracts us all to archives, the layers of meaning, tales, and enactments beyond the immediate informational content. And archive material runs through Boltanski's work using both his own history and that of others. He's always been interested in exploring the frozen moments which are captured as traces of lives lived, the photograph, the discarded garment. He's interested not only in what they can tell us, but also what happens to them when they're taken and placed in new contexts. As such, he's been associated with a tendency to take as a starting point the processes and practices of the museum and of the curator. Particularly in the 1960s and 1970s, a branch of cultural theory developed which questioned the political motives of the museum as an instrument of state and authority perpetrating certain stories and privileging certain groups over others. There was also discussion about the tendency of museum practice to take the life out of the objects they displayed, freezing and decontextualizing them like an insect pinned to a board. And this is a work called Vitrine de Référence, and it dates from 1970. And here Boltanski's captured some of the traces of his childhood, and he found there wasn't awfully much there to use, so some of it he's had to photocopy, he's recreated rough objects, um, remade from memory, which remind him of his childhood, and the labels are very sort of simple, simply prepared. So this material is presented in a rather unsettled and resolved sort of way um, to see what happens, what's lost, and what's gained when you put this material together. An important characteristic which appeared from this tendency of artistic practice um, questioning the museum's activities is the bringing in of the audience, the viewer, into the equation. The object need not have the same didactic function, fulfilling the message of the curator or the holder of authority, but can be opened up for the viewer's own interaction. This involvement of the viewer and their response to these totemic symbols of human experience gives the objects the potential of many new identities, in a sense reclaimed by the ordinary person. An important exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1999, entitled The Museum as Muse, provided a survey of the relationship between artist, museum, and audience, the ambiguities, discomforts, and inspirations of this relationship. 
The catalogue is a useful collection of artist statements on the subject, and Boltanski's um, text I'm, I'm going to quote from now. He says, Preventing forgetfulness, stopping the disappearance of things and beings, seemed to me a noble goal, but I quickly realised that this ambition was bound to fail, for as soon as we try to preserve something, we fix it. We can preserve things only by stopping life's course. If I put my glasses in a vitrine, they will never break, but will they still be considered glasses? Once glasses are part of a museum's collection, they forget their function. They are then only an image of glasses. In a vitrine, my glasses will have lost their reason for being, but they will also have lost their identity. So by moving the objects into a new environment, away from their original context, where they had a certain meaning, they're transformed from a kind of document of life into objects, objects which can then take on a new form. For example, Boltanski's works, which featured objects lost or found, as we might choose to look at it, on the subway in New York, and these are some objects from um, a similar piece which was actually produced in Glasgow. And he describes um, the, the New York piece as follows. I consider what I do to be like a musical score, and anyone can play it. Each time it's played, it means something different. If someone wanted to do the same show in Tokyo, it could be done with objects lost on the Tokyo trains. So by that selection of, of objects from the New York lost property, the show is interacting with its environment. Um, the objects lost in a particular city say something about that place and its inhabitants, its society. So there's a kind of anthropological aspect. So do I think Boltanski works like an archivist? At times, yes. At other times, I think the archival aspect is broad in the way that I've argued the meaning of the word archive itself is less fixed. And here we return again to the difference between collections and archives. And an illustration of this distinction can be seen in the work of the artists Neil Cummings and Marisha Lewandowska. Um, this is their, one of their websites, Enthusiasts Archive. It's a project which collects and presents amateur film from Polish film clubs implicitly commenting on the act of collecting and um, institutional critique in the sense of what are institutions willing to collect and what do they consider not worthy of collecting. So it's about privileging certain kinds of material over others. And essentially this is a collection of films rather than an archive, but the use of the term archive is an assertion of the changed status of the material, which has gone from obscurity to active preservation and presentation. The, the films are rehabilitated and celebrated. Cummings and Lewandowski cite the distinction between archive and collection and therefore a defining characteristic of their project as follows, quote, archives like collections in museums and galleries are built with the property of multiple authors and previous owners, but unlike the collection, there is no imperative within the logic of the archive to display or interpret its holdings. An archive designates a territory, not a particular narrative. The material connections contained are not already authored as someone's, for example, a curator's interpretation, exhibition or property. It's a discursive terrain. Interpretations are invited and not already determined. I think this description identifies what Boltanski sees in the archival material as used and referenced in his work. And I'll repeat a part of that quote. It is a territory, not a particular narrative. It's territory that Boltanski uses. He turns objects which may or may not genuinely have an original relationship with each other into a new narrative shaped by the presentation and context, which is a combination of the original qualities, his own responses, and the responses of the viewer. In the words of Hal Foster, he connects what can't be connected. And I've got a few 
examples, other examples of Boltanski's work here. This is a work called um, Recherche et Présentation de tout ce qui reste mon enfance, and it dates from May 1969. It was a piece of male art, um, again an attempt to reconstruct his childhood. And he described it as a search for a part of myself that had died away, an archaeological inquiry into the deepest reaches of my memory. As I mentioned earlier, that he, he didn't find very much documentation of his childhood and some of the gaps he filled with material that was created. So again, he's subverting the idea of truth in the archive and manipulating the viewer with these um, very um, rough quality reproductions. And this is a work called Tout ce que je sais d'une femme qui est morte et que je n'ai pas connue. So everything I know about a woman who's dead and who I didn't know. This was made in May 1970. And it was taken from a set of random snapshots which were given to Boltanski. And he used them as an exercise to, to try and draw conclusions of what he could deduce about the person um, from the text, uh, sorry, from the evidence they contain. And so the text he's put with it is um, based on factual observations about the pose. So he's saying um, the man has his, um, his hand on the shoulder of the woman. It's a hot day sky has no clouds, and, and so on. But there's actually very little else you can, you can draw from this. You don't know who the people are, what their relationship is to each other. You can only guess based on the kind of um, conventions of photographs. Um, he didn't actually even know if she was dead. Again, it's a fabrication which has an effect on how you see the material. And this is a work called Album de Photo de la Famille D. Um, dates from 1971. And again, it's a series of photographs um, between which Boltanski attempted to reconstruct um, a narrative. Um, the images actually turned out to be from uh, the gallery owner, Michel Durand, and he attempted to put them, Boltanski attempted to put them in chronological order to reconstruct the history of the family. And again, where he couldn't do that or where he got it wrong, he would just make it up anyway. So it's almost like a pseudo-sociological experiment. And about this work, he said, quote, I realized that these images were only witnesses to a collective ritual. They didn't teach us anything about the family D, but only sent us back to our own past. And there's some close-ups of the images in it. And there's also a warning in, in Boltanski's playfulness and contradictoriness, as we have seen. You have to be aware of, of how you respond to these images based on... Um, ideas that you've, you've already received. Don't always take what you see at, at face value. This is um, a work called Ten Photographic Portraits of Christian Boltanski. Um, and it's from 1972. And he's appearing to present a sequence of images of himself at various stages in his childhood. Um, and we all recognize these kinds of archetypal family images. The process of recording has been part of most of our lives. And the captions confirm and endorse our assumptions. But actually, only one of the boys is Boltanski. The others were all taken on the same day of different boys, of different ages. Um, so it actually works in the opposite linear dire direction to what it appears to present. So it's not one life over a period of years, but a number of lives over one day. It's a completely different way of looking at the images. But it makes you realize how quickly you, you jump to conclusions based on what you're told. And this is a work called Les Habits de François C. Um, so it's uh, the clothes of François C. It comprises a series of, of framed photographs of clothes left by this person, allegedly. So 
it's not even the clothes themselves, it's photographs of the clothes. Um, so it takes you a further step away from the original objects. And they raise more questions than they can possibly answer. Whose clothes are they? Why did these clothes survive? What's the story of this person? But again, we're seeing this pseudo-museological presentation of, of decontextualized objects, which have very little to tell once they're placed like that. And this is one of um, a series of works called Les Inventaires, Inventories, um, a series which began in 1973. And they, were, they purported to be inventories of objects left by a dead person. Um, some of them were lists, um, some of them were just photographs. Um, the Oxford version here features just photographs, but um, others had the objects displayed in a room, um, such as this one in Charleston in 1992. And these works are interesting in that they reference the um, archival in inventories which were used for legal purposes to financially value somebody's estate after their death. Um, and these documents can date back centuries and are often used by social historians to draw all kinds of conclusions about the person placing them by their material wealth and the number of um, chairs or tables or beds they had. But Boltanski uses them in, in quite a different way to ask questions about the sum of a life and what it means when that person has gone, if indeed they really have. Often the original subjects were not dead, as he said they were. So these are just some examples of Boltanski exploring the nature and processes of the archive and playing with the activities of the archivist and the curator. At times he also took the role of researcher historian as well, with works reconstructing stories of the workers of lost industrial communities, for example, or inhabitants of destroyed buildings. And his later works have taken many of the ideas um, seen in these early works um, and developed them on a much larger scale as major installations which have a much more performative element where the viewer experiences physically um, the work by passing through it, as we do here um, in the show here at Magazine 3. This performative aspect is an interesting um, part of Boltanski's work, uh, which means that the experience is time as well as space-based. Boltanski says, my work is a little like theatre, but it's always so different. I'm like a musician. I can play my work, and I can play my work better or worse, depending on the place where I'm showing. It's theatre without text, without spectacle. What I wish to do is something between theatre and installation. Which brings us to the heartbeats, Les Archives du Coeur. This work is intriguing in that it's a departure from Boltanski's previous work in taking a different kind of found object, the human heartbeat, Within a museum or archive context, how would we document and describe a heartbeat? What material designation does it have? Like a performance, it can only be documented if it's recorded, and only then a pale imitation of all that is represented by the original. These heartbeats are not traces, at least not until Bol Boltanski has captured them. Until that moment, they're the proof of existence that their owner is alive. But the minute they're recorded, they're like a photograph. They prove that a person was alive. And this is a work called Les Enfants de Berlin, the Children of Berlin, from 1975. And when taking the photographs for this piece, Boltanski said that he experienced a strange feeling that he was executing the children as the um, bulbs flashed. And I think that's quite an interesting comparison um, for the process of capturing heartbeats here, which is a, a very profound activity. And you've seen this slide before this evening, so forgive me for repeating it. Um, 
and for getting a little personal again, my own current experience has given me some food for thought about the, the heartbeat, because I have not one heartbeat in me at the moment, but two, obviously. And my heartbeat's been being monitored for my health, a barometer, um, not only of that, but of my mood. It registered fear and excitement. I had it taken about an hour ago, and it sounded very fast to me, which I was slightly worried about. Um, and at various stages during my pregnancy, I've also been listening to my baby's heartbeat, which has reassured me that, that my baby's alive and, and, and well. So the heartbeat is a kind of evidence in this context as well of somebody that, that nobody has ever met. And it's interesting, I think, that in this work, Boltanski has done exactly what he expressed reservations about in my earlier quote, when he said, as soon as we try to preserve something, we fix it. We can preserve things only by stopping life's course. Well, we've recorded our heartbeats and, and life's course has not been stopped. But this is the unsettling aspect to the recorded heartbeats. We're used to hearing them in a medical environment, on hospital drama series or in horror films, as a barometer of the protagonist's terror. And these are perhaps our first associations, or maybe that's just me. Um, when else do we hear our own heartbeats, except sometimes in the quiet hours of the night, as we lie awake in bed and hear the blood rushing through our veins and arteries? Yet there's something profoundly reassuring and life-affirming in the simplicity of this work. When I went into the exhibition today, I found myself at first slightly disturbed by hearing Boltanski's heartbeat, and then strangely compelled. It was as if I could feel some kind of response from my own heart. And particularly in the collaborative aspects of this work, both in responding to the work and contributing our own heartbeats, Boltanski reclaims the heartbeat as the first and most fundamental marker of our humanity. Um, he said, Boltanski said in an interview with Tate magazine in 2002, quote, what drives me as an artist is that I think everyone is unique, yet everyone disappears so quickly. I made a large work called The Reserve of Dead Swiss, 1990, which is related to one of the pieces in the show, obviously. There's a picture of it here. And all the people in photographs in the work are dead. We hate to see the dead, yet we love them, we appreciate them, human. That's all we can say. Everyone is unique and important. But I like something Napoleon said when he saw many of his dead soldiers on a battlefield. Oh, no problem. One night of love in Paris and you can replace everybody. And Boltanski also says, there is something contradictory in my work, in that it is about relics, but at the same time it's against relics. Part of my work has been about what I call small memory. Large memory is recorded in books, and small memory is all about the little things, trivia, jokes. Part of my work then has been about trying to preserve small memory, because often when someone dies, that memory disappears. Yet that small memory is what makes people different from one another, unique. These memories are very fragile. I wanted to save them, end quote. And so we're back to microhistory, as I referred to earlier. By our interaction with Boltanski's work, with him and with the archive material, we regenerate the small memories of others. And so that microhistory, those small memories are yours and mine, and we add the accumulations of response and experience which fulfill the work. As Boltanski has said, an artwork is open. It is the spectators looking at the work who make the piece, using their own background. A lamp in my work might make you think of a police interrogation, but it's also religious, like a candle. There are many ways of looking at the work. It has to be unfocused somehow, so that everyone can recognize something of their own self when viewing it. Thank you very much.